Well, good morning. Uh, if we haven't met perchance, my name's John. I'm one of the pastors here uh, at the church, and it's great to be worshiping with you. Uh, we're continuing our Advent series uh, titled Gifts in the Waiting. And it's a, it's a series that's taking us through some of the stories you know, leading up to the birth of Jesus. And uh, we're, we're kind of looking at the, the experiences of people in these stories and understanding that the Bible can be both a window and a mirror, a window in the sense that we get to observe the lives of others and, and what the Lord was doing in their lives, and a mirror because uh, often we see ourselves in those stories. And God is still up to his good work in the world and in us, so we can see a bit of how the Lord might be working in our lives as well. And we've been trying to think about the gifts the people in the stories received how those same gifts are available to us in Christ and how as God's people in the world, we then are called to share these same gifts with others. So let's listen uh, to Matthew chapter one, verses 18 through 25 now. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Justice is getting what you deserve. Mercy is not getting the punishment you deserve. And grace is getting something much better than you deserve. Justice is getting what you deserve. Mercy is not getting the punishment you deserve. And grace is getting something much better than you deserve. Uh, the fifth church family here knows that my wife is a school teacher, a third grade teacher, and one of the primary areas of focus in third grade is English language arts, you know, learn, learning the language. And one of the things that kids are coached in at that age is approaching a text and how to identify the problem in the text. What's, what's the issue? What's, what's going on here? So they're coached with questions like these. What, what's the big problem? Uh, how did people in the story try to resolve it? What worked? What didn't? What other details in the text expand on the problem? What other details in the text expand on the solution? And it's all about kind of identifying the problem. 
Well, in the story we read this morning, uh, there's a big problem, a very big problem. And here it is. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother was pledged, uh, his mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. So Mary was found to be pregnant before their wedding day. And of course, at one level, we understand that's a problem. Uh, But when you do the homework on the cultural context, you understand how big a problem it really was for Mary. See, in in the Palestinian culture of Jesus' day, it was very much an honor and shame culture uh, driven by uh, how one and one's family was held in esteem or not in the public eye. That was the most important thing. It's very different from our kind of experience of culture in our day. We live very uh, individualistically, but in that day it was more societally based and the big deal was whether your stock was rising or going down and you wanted to maintain honor in the public eye. And for that reason, anything that brought public shame to the family needed to be dealt with quickly and without hesitation. That's the big social context, honor, honor and shame. And then next is this, Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, meaning in that day they were betrothed. So this was a bit like uh, engagement on steroids. So in, in that day, there was a two-part marriage process. The first step was betrothal, and the second step was the actual wedding day. And betrothal involved a formal in- agreement and the paying of the bride price uh, by the bride's family to the groom's family. So betrothal was a legal contract that could only be broken by adultery or divorce. And the, the strange part for us is that after being betrothed, the couple was considered husband and wife, but they didn't live together nor did they consummate the ma- marriage until part two of the wedding process, which was the wedding celebration. And what would happen in that in-between time is the young man would actually go back to his family's house Don't think house like we think. Think family compound where if you've got a big family that gathers for Thanksgiving dinner, extended family, that whole crew lived together in a compound and the the husband-to-be would go back and add a room on to this compound. He literally would prepare a place to take his bride once they were married. Now, Uh, You might be hearing echoes, if if you're familiar with the scripture, of something that Jesus said to his disciples. Remember, it was the the night before the crucifixion. Uh, Jesus told his disciples that he was going away and that where he was going, they couldn't follow. And they were deeply troubled by this. So to comfort them, he said this. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. Context is everything in this, isn't it? (laughs) You see what Jesus did there? In the disciples' great distress that Jesus was going to go somewhere they couldn't follow. They were heartbroken by this. And what what Jesus did 
is he broke out an example that all of them would understand. He, he shared this example. It's kind of like the time between the betrothal and the wedding. And you're, you're kind of like the bride-to-be, and I'm, I'm kind of like the bridegroom. And I'm going away, but the reason I'm going away is to prepare a place for you. And don't you worry one bit, because just as it would be impossible to conceive that the young betrothed man would forget his bride-to-be, I will not forget you. And I will come back to take you to be with me where I am. Because in the, in the cultural marriage process, that's exactly what happened. The young man would finish the room at the family compound, and when that was complete, then the wedding ceremony could commence. The man would go to the young woman's family compound, and they'd have a week-long wedding ceremony, after which the couple would be fully married and would move to the groom's family compound to the room perfectly prepared, and they would bring, begin their life together. Pledged to be married. Honor, shame, culture. Pledged to be married. Promise, legal contract. Now the problem. But before they came together, Mary was found to be pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Before they came together in that about year-long window, honor, shame, pledged to be married, promised to this one guy, you know, this was much more than an inconvenience for Mary. This was a, uh, a community scandal, really, that, that brought great shame on Mary and her family. Now, now rewind in the story a little bit. If, if you remember the story of the Bible, we talked about this last week. The angel Gabriel showed up to Mary and said, hey, you're going to have a baby. And I didn't unpack this a lot last week, but it's kind of interesting to read that because Gabriel makes a whole big statement and it's very clear that Mary got stuck on word one, which was, wait, what? I can't have a baby. I, because, you know, because. Uh, and, and then Gabriel, of course, says, well, the, the Holy Spirit is going to work that out. And do you remember Mary's response? You know, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. We blow right by the cultural realities of that. We have so little understanding what it meant for Mary to say that. Because in Mary's mind, the angel's promise of a, of a baby before she was fully married meant a very difficult future for her. In fact, it could be life-threatening. Look at what Deuteronomy says, what the law says. If a man happens to meet in a town a virgin pledged to be married, betrothed, and he sleeps with her, you shall take both of them to the gate of that town and stone them to death. The young woman, because she was in a town and did not scream for help, and the man, because he violated another man's wife. You must purge the evil from among you. Mary knew this. She knew the law. Now, in her day, that practice of stoning was not at all common, but it was not out of the realm of possibility. So, in her mind, this angel's promise was landing on her as a potential threat to her life, possibly. If Joseph made a big deal of it, went public, it was bad news 
for Mary. This was a very big problem. And the very big problem presented Joseph with the biggest dilemma of his life. He knew he wasn't the father. And he was heartbroken. I mean, you can only imagine, right? His betrothed, beloved Mary, the one for whom he'd been working so hard building this room, he'd known her for a long time, had betrayed him with another man, or so it seemed. It was for him one of those, wow, human nature really stinks kind of moments. Right? Where we seem to be perpetually surprised by the fact that other people will let us down. We really ought not be surprised by that because you, like me, know what's in here, right? We have that capacity. But, but Joseph still loved Mary. He knew her, so he struggled. And, and we have his decision on how he would proceed. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. And remember, the only way you could break a betrothal was by adultery or divorce. So plan A or plan B. From Joseph's perspective, plan A is what had happened, but he was going to choose plan B. See, Joseph was faithful to the law and did not want to expose Mary to public disgrace. And there's tension between those two things. Faithful to the law, the law required. Justice in situations of wrongdoing. Clearly, from Joseph's eyes, there was wrongdoing here. Moreover, according to the law, it was evil to overlook wrongdoing, to do nothing about it. Remember, justice is getting what you deserve. Mercy is not getting the punishment you deserve, and grace is getting something much better than you deserve. See, justice said Mary needed to bear the consequences of her behavior, but in mercy, Joseph did not want Mary to suffer the consequences of her behavior. He understood what the implications would be for Mary if found out to be an adulteress. The possibility of stoning existed. The certainty of being abandoned and isolated from her family and a lifetime of suffering for her if that was the path. See, Joseph had God's law in his heart. He'd been shaped by it. So he was both just and merciful, desiring to fulfill both of those values simultaneously. He remembered Micah 6.8. What does the Lord your God require of you? To do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. But what do you do when justice and mercy conflict? What do you do when pursuing justice is unmerciful and when expressing mercy is unjust? Really? Really, really, what do you do? Because we all have a natural bent and it's good to be in touch with that so we can participate with what God's doing in us, right? I mean, is is your natural bent toward, hey, they made their bed, now they got to sleep in it? Or is it, man, I do the same things, we should, you know, the, the consequences would be too bad, just we need to let them off the hook a little bit here. 
See, by deciding to divorce Mary quietly rather than exposing her as an adulteress, Joseph was deciding to take social shame upon himself for the purpose of shielding her. He would act as justly and as mercifully as he could, but it would cost him. The price would be high to shield Mary from the consequences of her actions. You see, he would be the one perceived by his community as breaking the engagement contract by divorcing Mary. Everyone would think he was the father and that he had decided to leave her. He would suffer public shame for that. He would be perceived as the one unfaithful to his promise. He would bear the guilt of Mary at his own expense and Mary would get something much better than she deserved, which is one definition of grace. See, when confronted with the tension between justice and mercy, Joseph chose grace. And gladly, when God was confronted with the tension between justice and mercy, as he looked at all of us, God chose grace. Substitutionary atonement is the idea that Jesus stood in our place and bore our guilt for us at great cost to himself. Obviously the cross. Jesus bearing our guilt at expense to himself, grace. Right? Because he loved God's law, Joseph was prepared to bear the guilt of Mary at great cost to himself. And sometimes followers of Jesus in this world are called to bear the guilt of others at our cost. Says one author and theologian I really like, F.D. Bruner, substitutionary atonement is not only doctrinal truth, done by Christ for others. It is also ethical truth done by Christ's people for others. See, at times Christians are called to be like Joseph, to absorb the guilt of others at great cost to ourselves. Sometimes that's what it means to be gracious, to extend grace. Sometimes it's the only path forward that honors both justice and mercy. There's a, there's a song, I'm dating myself now, right? There's a song by U2 uh, called Grace. Some of you might know this. Here's one of the lines from it. Grace, she takes the blame, she covers the shame, removes the stain, it could be her name. I mean, that's it, Grace, Grace takes the blame. Grace takes the blame. Joseph had made his decision Very big problem. He's a very noble man. He made this decision, but then came a very big surprise. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. There's the classic line again, don't be afraid. Because our initial response is fear. Don't be afraid. But this isn't simply at encountering the Lord or a messenger of the Lord. Uh, There's more at stake here. Divorcing Mary quietly would mean taking a hit socially, but going ahead and marrying her was inconceivable. She cheated on me. The baby's not mine. 
And if Joseph went forward with this, he and Mary would both live lives of isolation and public shame, being uh, ostracized from their communities. And, by the way, that is exactly what happened. Because remember the whole census bit when Joseph and Mary had to travel to Bethlehem, his ancestral home, Joseph's ancestral home, and uh, the classic line that's misinterpreted so badly, there was no room for them in the inn, and we think either Motel 6 or a nice bed and breakfast or something, that did not exist. There was no commercial hospitality in that day. There wasn't even a travel house. I mean, commercial hospitality wasn't even an idea on anybody's radar. It was understood that uh, hospitality was to be extended, not purchased. And it was, it was the moral obligation of people, if you see a, saw a traveler coming up, to say, hey, come, do you need a place to stay? Come, may we feed you? Have coffee with us. Stay at our home. This is a whole other sermon, but I, I would postulate that, that that is one of the greatest failings of our culture. And probably uh, one of the root causes of the great mental health crisis. Another conversation. Um, but there's no, there's no hotel. So when Joseph and Mary showed up in Bethlehem and it says there was no room for them, what that means is that they rounded the horn. And remember, it's Joseph's ancestral family town. He had a ton of relatives there. They went from house to house. Can we, uh, can we step? Nope. Get the baby cam before you were married. Next. Can we? Uh, nope. Nope. House. Their entire family rejected them. Nobody welcomed them. And evidently word had gotten around because none of their friends welcomed them either. They had to go to the stable. Unheard of in that culture. They were completely ostracized. But, but the angel's message was very clear. There is something much bigger going on here. Something your families won't understand. Something your community won't understand. In fact, something the whole world will not understand. Don't be afraid, Joseph. Because what is conceived in Mary is from the Holy Spirit, or, or more literally, by the Holy Spirit. This wasn't a delivery from the Holy Spirit. This was caused by the Holy Spirit. And of course, the Holy Spirit is God, a member of the Trinity. So Jesus was conceived by God. And just like Jesus was conceived by God, faith in Jesus is conceived by God. You know, when, when Jesus comes to any of our hearts, any of our lives, it's always by the work of the Holy Spirit. God does that. Yeah, we gotta, there's a part for us to play. We've got to stop saying no and start saying yes and just stop resisting. But God's doing all the work. I mean, back to that commentator, F.D. Bruner, he, he puts it this way. Every conversion is a virgin birth. Every single one. Every time someone turns to Jesus and stops resisting him is a virgin birth. For it is by grace 
you've been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. It's grace. It's grace. And of course, this points to the person who is the, the object of our faith. You know, as followers of Jesus, we, we don't trust in information about Jesus. We, we believe what the Bible says is true, but we do not trust in the Bible. The entire message of Scripture culminating in the New Testament is that we can have faith in God who is a person, a person who has made himself known so we can know what God is like. So what does this passage tell us about the person in whom we believe? Look at the last part of the passage. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So there are, there are two names for the Messiah in, in this passage, Jesus and Emmanuel, and together they reveal the person and work of the Messiah, of, of, of Christ. The name Jesus means the Lord saves. Specifically, Jesus will save his people from their sins. By sacrificing himself, God will satisfy both justice and express God's mercy. And this is grace, right? This is salvation. Saving his people, people God loves and cares about, that's everybody everywhere. Saving his people from their sin. Theirs was the debt that he paid. And of course, he forgives us for the sin, pays our debt, and then we get his resume, or in the, in the debt illustration, his credit report, right? That's the righteousness of Christ that's given to us. Jesus is, is savior, but not just a savior, the savior. And that's clear from the next name, Emmanuel. The name Emmanuel literally means God with us. From the, from the very beginning, Jesus was never born. It was announced that Jesus would be God, not just a good guy, not just an extraordinary spiritual leader, not just a healer or preacher or teacher, not just a prophet or priest, but God with us. Put the two names together and the sum is the simple message of the gospel. God came to earth in the person of Jesus for the purpose of saving people from their sins. And that's what we believe. This is what God did for us. Mercy and grace are available to us. I, I, I so remember, uh, it was probably the summer, I think it was the summer after I graduated from college. I, I had made an initial commitment to Christ, but I was still grappling with, well, what does this mean Really, like, what is I? I was filled with doubts and all sorts of stuff. And I, I remember I, I was reading a lot of stuff, and I, I was talking to my friends Matt and Lisa Waller. And I was trying to say, explain something like how I was coming to understand something in the Bible. And I remember Lisa's face; she was kind of sitting there looking at me. And she's she's a very very much a straight shooter. 
just like, she just tells you how it is, which I love about her. And I'm, I'm talking and Lisa's kind of going like this and her brow's starting to furrow and then her head's starting to lean. <laughs> which was a tell for her that I was about to be on the receiving end of something. And, and she just said, John, I, I don't disagree with anything you just said right there, but that's just, that's just way too complicated. This is all really very simple. God came to earth in the person of Jesus. He lived an amazing life. He actually died on the cross. And he really rose from the dead. And he is alive right now. And he loves you. And he wants you. Well, that's pretty simple. And Jesus... Emmanuel, the one who saves us, came to be with us for the purpose of saving us. This is what God did for us. Jesus, in Jesus, God stepped down to where we are to take our place, to bear our guilt, to take our shame upon himself. As followers of Jesus, when we say Merry Christmas, this is what we're talking about. The gifts of God's mercy and grace are what make Christmas merry. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Pray with me, would you? God, thank you for the simple message of the gospel. Uh, we confess before you that our, our minds race ahead and our, our desire to reason it out and figure it all out can get in our way. Uh, so God, would you help us? Would you help us simply to trust you? Not, not blindly, but trust you because we believe the resurrection actually happened and help us rest in what you said, believing that your resurrection validates and gives power to everything that you said, Lord Jesus. I'll pour out your spirit on us and help us, help us move forward with you in faith. We ask in your name. Amen. Amen.